Well, would you take uh, the Word of God with me tonight and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 12. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, as you uh, turn there, uh, in the beginning of the chapter, we have uh, the Lord speaking to Moses about the instruction concerning the Passover to the children of Israel. Uh, I remind you that uh, they were to have a new beginning. They would change the first month of the year, would become the month Abib. On the tenth day of that month, they were to select a lamb. On the fourteenth day, night, they were to slay the lamb, and then they were to begin the feast of the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, for seven days until the twenty-first day. And they were to observe this year after year after year. Uh, there was a great emphasis before the Passover on the lamb, the selection of the lamb. It had to be spotless. The, the, the lamb had to be slain. The blood had to be um, uh, used and spread on the doorpost. And after the slaying of the lamb begins the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. And so uh, leaven represents sin and corruption and it had to be removed from their houses and so they, they do so, and after that we see that uh, Moses then communicates that uh, to the children of Israel. Uh, they themselves do all that the Lord commanded them. And then we have uh, the actual record uh, of uh, the tenth plague from verse 29 through verse 30. And uh, then we have a summary of uh, the Exodus from verse 31 down to verse 42. Uh, in other words, there is a summary of the manner in which they left. Uh, in large part, this is the fulfillment of what was prophesied in Genesis chapter 15. So, all surrounding the Passover, but different aspects of the Passover, things surrounding the Passover. And now we come to the last portion of this chapter, and we're going to begin reading in verse 43 and read down to the end of the chapter. And here we have, um, if you would, some more instruction as to the observance of the Passover. And although it seems to be repetition at this time, it's not repetition. There's something new that is given to us in the sense that we haven't heard this thus far about the Passover. One aspect of the Passover, and that is who is to observe the Passover? Who is not to observe the Passover? And the children of Israel are to uh, think about it uh, as something to be very important. And so notice with me Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll read through the end of the chapter. So Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. And the Word of God says, And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Now he's talking about uh, the lamb that would be slain, that's the observance of the Passover, they were not to, in the sense, break a part of the lamb off and then carry it to somebody out so that they can partake of the Passover. They were not to do that. Verse 47, All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall, shall sojourn with thee, 
and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is home-born, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Thus saith all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. Let's, uh, let's pray. I want to bring your attention here before we pray to verse 49. It says, one law, one law. I'm interested in those two words because it is the first time in all of Scripture that the word law appears. That's the Hebrew word Torah. It's the first time it appears in the Bible. You do find the word law used in the sense of father-in-law, daughter-in-law. And one time it is used, I believe, in Genesis 47 when Joseph made a law that they should keep apart during the years of plenty, but that's ref made re making reference to one specific law to the children of Israel. But when we're, we're thinking about the Torah, the law that God gave, that God would give to Moses, that's not been given yet, that's the first time that that word appears in the Scriptures. And so it's an important, but one law, whether a stranger or of the children of Israel, there is one law that applies to all. And so let's uh, pray as we begin this meeting tonight. Father, we thank you for uh, your word, and we pray as we uh, read it that we would consider the truth that we find therein. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would receive help, and uh, certainly in this portion of Scripture, there is a direct uh, instruction given to the children of Israel, but Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to learn some things uh, by uh, what we find uh, in these verses. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd give us understanding this evening. Help us to be uh, admonished, encouraged, and help. helped. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we come here to the last portion, we, we have a, a set of instructions uh, that, is, uh, that is given to the children of Israel concerning the Passover. Now, as I mentioned here, this whole chapter has been dealing with the Passover. And yet here we have some additional information or perhaps some additional instruction as we think about the Passover. Early on in the chapter, we are looking at instituting the Passover. So God speaks to Moses at the beginning of the chapter, says, tell this to the children of Israel, that they observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then we actually have the observance of the Passover and that night was the death of the firstborn. Then we have a summary of the, the Exodus. And now we come back, but this instruction is really for the future observances of the Passover. The Passover, now we come to this portion, has already been observed. And so therefore, this reference is made of future. The children of Israel were instructed in this chapter to observe the Passover year after year. It was an annual feast. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was uh, something that was annually uh, supposed to be regarded among the children of Israel. And so when we uh, come to this last portion, we have some, 
restrictions as to who can participate in this Passover and who is not to participate in this Passover. And so I want to consider as we uh, come to, uh, to this portion, uh, first of all, the restrictions. Uh, notice there are three groups that are mentioned here in, in this chapter. In verse 43, we find the first group. The, the Bible says, The Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. So the first group of people who are not to participate in the Passover are called strangers, or we could say in verse 45, a foreigner. Uh, there shall no stranger eat thereof. And so the feast, what was to be observed... By Israel alone, no stranger or foreigner was to participate in this feast. It was for what we could say, the, the children of Abraham, which is really the family of faith, who, had, who, who were the recipients or who had participated in God's deliverance, and therefore they alone could commemorate uh, this uh, this Passover, and so no stranger. And when we think about stranger, we could say that it is anybody that is that has not experienced the redemption that Israel has experienced. Now, what is the Passover about? Remember, the Passover was what brought about was the event that brought about the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage, and so the four nations would be foreign to that idea. They would be strangers to the observation of the Passover. And so God is careful to instruct Moses to tell the children of Israel uh, that in the future, when you observe the Passover, make sure that the foreigner and the stranger doesn't come with you and participate in the observation of the Passover. Why? Well, because they are really clueless as to what the Passover is. The second group that is mentioned is no hired servants. Notice verse 45, a foreigner and an hired servant. So a foreigner, I believe here he repeats the idea of a stranger who is not to participate. But now he has a second group and that is a hired servant shall not eat thereof. Now a hired servant, if we think about it, there are two types of servants in those days. There would be servants who would be bought and the majority of the time, as we'll see in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, someone at times who owed a debt that they could not pay would, in a sense, sell themselves to the person until uh, they would pay back the debt. And so they would work. And by the way, it was, in a sense, it was a, um, a way to keep people from being, being poor it was also a way for them to be provided for, to have food and, and shelter. And so sometimes people, they, they condemn the, the Bible and say, well, look, uh, the Bible is okay with slavery. There is no such thing. Uh, often people were paying off debt, uh, and so they had to sell themselves. We find that example uh, in the book of Exodus. We even find that, remember, when there was uh, seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in Egypt. When the people ran out of food, they sold their cattle, they sold their land. At the end, they have nothing left. They sold themselves, but they didn't remain in bondage until they paid their debt. Then they were able to recuperate some things. And so this is the same here in this account. But he says here, it's not so there is the group of those who are uh, bought servants, but then there is a group that are hired servants. 
The bought servants are in the sense they're in bondage until their bondage is fulfilled, but the hired servant uh, is one who is paid for. And so a hired servant would be also someone who is an outsider, but he is a man who in the Jewish home would be pursuing self-interest. In other words, he is working for pay. And so if he is in the household of, uh, of uh, one of the children of Israel, uh, God says that that hired servant is not to eat of the Passover. But there's a third group of people that is mentioned in verse 48. He mentions here, And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover of the Lord, let his males be circumcised, and let, the, uh, let uh, him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. So notice the last group at the end of verse 48 is, No uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Now, uh, it's important to understand here at this point uh, what is circumcision and what it is about. Circumcision was simply a sign of God's covenant. Uh, we must go back early on to Genesis chapter uh, 17. If you turn back with me to the book of Genesis and uh, chapter 17, I'll give you a moment to get there. I, I think it's important here because when we think about circumcision, we're talking about the descendants of Abraham, and we must go back to the time when that was instituted. So notice with me Genesis chapter uh, 17. And uh, let's uh, begin reading in verse 1. So Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. And when Abram was uh, 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. He goes on to say, notice, I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abraham, Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generation." This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee, every man child among you, shall be circumcised. So God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I'm going to do for your seed after you. It is an everlasting covenant. Now Abraham, this is what you, Abraham, need to do. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And he mentions here, this is... The, this is my covenant. Notice in verse 11, he goes on to give some further explanation. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. So here's what we learn. 
What is the idea of the circumcision about? It is about this. It is about it, the circumcision, being a token of the covenant. The circumcision itself is not the covenant. But the observation of the circumcision, the doing of the circumcision, is a token of the covenant between God and man. So understand, Abraham here would have to make a decision to circumcise all the males in the household and to observe that from generation to generation as an everlasting covenant whereby by faith man recognizes the covenant that God has made with him and by faith he is found obedient to the circumcision and that obedience is representative of his faith. Uh, By the way, obedience is always uh, the representation of faith. Uh, it, it is a, if you would, our obedience is a token of our faith. We continue reading in Genesis chapter 12, uh, 17, verse 12. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generation, generations. He that is born in the house or um, bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed, He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And so the one who refuses to observe the circumcision is the one by his own action who is declared, I do not believe. And so the circumcision is a token of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So understand that when we come back, so let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and uh, notice with me the third group. No uncircumcised person is to observe or partake of the Passover. Now, No stranger, no hired servant, and no uncircumcised person is to do what? Observe the ordinance of the Passover, which would include the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. No stranger, no hired servant, and no uncircumcised person. But yet as we look at our text, it seems that there are people who are included. There are some who can partake of the Passover. Notice here those people. So if we look at our text, he says this. So after mentioning verse 43, there shall no stranger either of, notice verse 44. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. Then he mentions verse 45. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. Verse 46. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land, 
For no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is homeborn unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. So understand here the passage. It's not a contradiction. Understand what he's saying. No stranger can participate in the Passover. But the stranger can participate in the Passover. No servant can participate in the Passover unless the servant do certain things, then he can participate in the Passover. So he basically says, uh, the, the, I almost out of the message, no stranger, but the stranger is okay. Uh, and I would like to put it this way here, that this record is given here as basically a wall was erected or built to shut out the enemies from participating in the Passover, but the door was open to receive friends. You see, no hired servant could participate in the feast, but a bond servant who had been purchased and circumcised and who was now one of the household could participate in the Passover. And it's interesting here that it was the same for the foreigner who sojourned with Israel, uh, provided that he would submit to the right of the circumcision. And so he says, no stranger can come in, but the stranger can come in. If he does what? If he observes the, the circumcision, which is what? Which is a token of the covenant. It is an act of faith for a stranger to come in the house and say, uh, we will be circumcised and all the males in our household will be circumcised. That is an act of faith. And whoso observe that, uh, observes that act of faith, that token of the covenant, can come into the household and participate in the observation of the Passover. And so to me, is, uh, and again, this, there's a direct application to the children of Israel, but I think there's an application uh, for us today because we don't observe the feast of the Passover, but we do observe an ordinance, do we not? Uh, this is called the ordinance of the Passover, we do not observe the ordinance of the Passover, but we do observe the ordinance of the Lord's table. We do observe the ordinance of baptism when those who place their faith in Christ, uh, they uh, come and they profess their faith in Christ. And in a sense, baptism is a token of the heart that has been circumcised. And they identify publicly with Christ. It is an act of faith. Uh, baptism does not save, but it is the act of faith of the one who has been saved and transformed by the Spirit of God. But we also observe the ordinance of the Passover. Uh, uh, sometimes we, uh, uh, when it comes time for the observation of the Passover, we do things that are a little different than most churches do. And I'm not ashamed to say that because I believe that the way we observe the Lord's table is the biblical way to observe the Lord's table. Uh, the Lord's uh, table is to be observed by those who've received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Lord's table is to be observed for, by those who have been scripturally baptized and who have become members of a local New Testament Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church and who uh, have a, an agreement with the doctrine of the church and who participate. And there's an element here that we are protected. We are protecting that ordinance where we understand that it is not a way to impart grace to someone, but it is us observing something that was done in our lives 
going back to the crucifixion. And that is something that ought to be protected. It ought to be something that we don't just hand out and deal with it lightly. There's a certain aspect in this passage that says here, when you observe the Lord's Passover, it is important for you to be reverend concerning the observation of the Passover. The things of God ought not to be treated lightly. They ought to be treated with utmost seriousness and reverence. I want you to notice in verse 46, one of those elements, he says this, in one house shall it be eaten. Remember, early on in the chapter was one lamb per household, and you eat the entirety of the lamb that night, unleavened. Thou shalt not carry forth all of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Now, uh, whether this comparison works or not, uh, this is why we observe the Lord's table. One of the reasons we observe the Lord's table when the church gathers together. I do not go to the hospital and give, uh, give communion to somebody. We don't observe that in our house as a family. We do it when the church comes together under one household. Why? Because this is the household of the redeemed. It's not the household of those who are strangers and who are foreigners from the grace of God. And so we protect that ordinance. And here they are to protect and reverence that ordinance. They are not to take part of the observation outside of the household uh, to share it with everybody in the world. It is something that is private and that only the people in the household should partake in. Now, I want us to think about what he says here. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth all of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall he break a bone thereof. Think about it here. The lamb, first of all, was only to be eaten under the shelter of the atoning blood. The lamb was only to be eaten under the shelter of the atoning blood. Notice he says, in one house shall, shall it be eaten. Remember, Going back to the Passover, what was the representation? Well, the blood was sprinkled on the doorpost, and the angel would come over the house, and if he saw that the blood was applied, everybody within that house was safe. And so therefore, uh, the idea here of the observation of the Passover, it's not a feast that we observe lightly and we just hand it to everybody and say, oh, here's some of the Passover for you. Here's some observation. Here's some impartation of grace to you. Uh, no, it is to be observed to all those who are under the blood. We also see here, notice, thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh. You know, I think here it's interesting because he says, uh, in conjunction, in one house shall it be eaten, but don't carry out the flesh. You know, I, I think there's an aspect here that many people would wonder that were in Egypt, well, what's going on inside this household? And when they would observe in the future, time, again, this is instruction, they've only observed it once. But they are to observe it again and again. And God gives them warning as to how to reverence and to protect this feast. And He says in the future, when you think about that, some people might inquire as to why you observe this feast. Why do you do this feast of unleavened bread? Why do you remember this? And so I think that many people would admire from the outside without ever partaking of the atoning work. And I think in the same way today, there are many people who may admire Christ without ever having partaken in the atoning work of Christ. I think there are a lot of people who are what I would refer to as curious Christians. They attach themselves to some form of Christianity 
to some form of religion or spirituality, and they think that just because there is an interest in spiritual things that, that they're, they're fine. No, they have to be partakers of the atoning work of Christ. So in one household shall it be in, thou shalt not carry aught of the flesh abroad out of the house. Uh, you see, and, and notice, and he mentions why, because if they're going to, again, how many lamb was it per household? One. That means that if you're going to carry that one lamb per household out, or a portion of it, you'd have to break the bones. That's what he says. Neither shall he break a bone thereof. And I think here it's important for us here, God, why, why does he say that to Moses? And I think that we know Christ is our Passover, and God will not have the perfection of Christ disfigured as it would be a type of his broken bones. Now, why would he say that? I think that they're in the scripture, you know where I'm going here, but let's go there. Let's go to Psalm 34. Let's go to Psalm 34. Notice Psalm 34 and um, verse 20. Psalm 34, verse 20. This is a, a, a messianic verse because when it is uh, quoted later, it is quoted as a messianic verse. Now often if you did not have the New Testament, you wouldn't know that. But since we do have the New Testament, we can say with certainty that this is a Messianic verse because it is quoted later, making reference back to this point uh, when at the crucifixion of Christ. And I, we'll go there in John 19 in just a moment. But notice with me Psalm 34 verse 20. The Bible says, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Okay, now... We might think that that applies to the psalmist, but no, it applies to Christ. Go with me to John chapter 19. The Gospel of John and chapter 19. Uh, notice here, uh, let's uh, get uh, a little context here at the crucifixion, the scene. Uh, notice with me John 19, verse 28. John 19, 28, the Bible says, And this Jesus knowing, after this Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon, uh, upon hyssop, and put it in his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. All right, I, let me just pause here. Jesus Christ said, It is finished. I know this is not the subject of the message tonight. But the crucifixion is enough to atone for the sin of all men. Jesus said it is finished. The work of redemption is complete. I don't want to just gloss over this. This is an important verse. Uh, the work of redemption that, that God had uh, planned from before the foundation of the world, that we should be in Christ, it is finished right here. That's what Jesus Christ accomplished. Now as we move beyond that, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And notice verse 31. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might take, uh, be taken away. Then came the soldiers and uh, brake the legs of the first and the other which 
was crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. We know that the prophecy about Christ is not one bone of his body would be broken. And we know that the Passover lamb, which is a foreshadow of what Christ is to be and what Christ is to do, that not one of his bones is to be broken. And so God is, is uh, very particular in preserving this type of Christ by saying you should not take and break the bones of the lamb and to uh, take it outside of the house. You are not to disfigure the spotless lamb and to allow other people to participate who are not under the household of redemption. And so what is this all about? Well, I think it's this. Reverence is commanded. Reverence is commanded with respect to the Lamb. Reverence is commanded with respect to the Lamb. Uh, let me put it this way. I guess in, in today's... Uh, what, what is all this? God is saying to Moses... Don't bring the world in and don't take what you have out. Don't bring the world in and desecrate the lamb by taking it out. So, so what is that? Now, I, I know here, okay, we, we, we're in the application here. I, I know we're, we're not Israel. We're not in this time. Uh, we're not literally observing the Passover, but this is representative of Christ. The Lamb is representative of Jesus Christ as the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And there is an aspect uh, uh, that we should not uh, desecrate the place where the people of God gather under the blood, and we should not uh, desecrate the church with the filth of the world. And so the world has its music, has its entertainment, has its agenda, and that should not be brought in to the church to defile the church and to defile the name of Christ and to say, well, anybody can come and, and anybody can participate and we can have people join the church who are unregenerate and unredeemed. No, no, that cannot be. Uh, the church must not be desecrated. Those who are under the blood, under the household of the blood of Christ, should not allow the world in and strangers to come in and to mold and to shape the church after what they want it to be. But uh, neither should the things that are to be reverenced ought to be taken out of the world, out into the world. In the sense, I'm not saying here that we should not preach the gospel on the world. Uh, we're talking about, about Christ and reverence toward Christ. That we should... Uh, not try to uh, somehow impress people with, uh, with, with what we do by trying to uh, attract the world. And here you can come and participate in that. And it seems clear here that there's a reverential aspect that is commanded here with respect to the Lamb. Don't uh, treat that lightly. So he says, no stranger, but if the stranger comes in, he abides by the circumcision, which is uh, a token of his faith. And if he submits to the commands, then the stranger will be as one of the children of Israel. Notice with me, verse 49. He says this, so notice verse 48, he says, And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, 
and will keep the Passover of the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised, and let them come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. And then he says this, verse 49, One law shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Now, notice, if you seem, at the beginning of this passage, we see, oh, this is just for the children of Israel. No stranger, no hired servants, no uncircumcised person. But then he says, but if the stranger be circumcised and wants to observe the Passover and uh, submits to the rites of the Passover, then he can participate. And as a matter of fact, whether he be a, a born in, in the nation of Israel, among the people of Israel, or whether he be a stranger, there will be one law for both. Not two standards, not two laws. In other words, there are two laws for the stranger and the child of, of Israel where the stranger does not want to abide, where the stranger does not want to submit. There are two laws there. You cannot participate. But there is only one law for those who do want to participate and who do submit to what God has said. Notice one law should be to him that is homeborn and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. As I mentioned here, this is the first time the word law is used in the Old Testament in the sense of the Torah. I already mentioned it's been used in reference to uh, sister-in-law, father-in-law, brother-in-law, right? That word law by itself uh, in Genesis and the book of Exodus. It was also used once in Genesis 47, 26 when Joseph made a decree in Egypt during the time of plenty. But this is the first time that the word law is applied. One law shall be to him that is homeborn and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. God has never had two standards. Whereby some people have to come and abide by one standard and other people have to abide by some standard to come to Christ. To come to this place here of the Passover, there's only been one standard. Notice here, uh, God does not uh, tell Moses, now you're going to have to give some extra instructions to the strangers. That's not so. They're actually just supposed to do what the children of Israel have already done. Nothing new. Do what the children of Israel have already done. So with regards to the law, I was thinking about that one law shall be to him that is homeborn. That's a significant word, a significant first use, and I was thinking about giving an explanation on the law here, particularly as it applies here to the first mention in the Bible. And as, as far as I could write, I, I found a, a substitute, a Bible commentator Adam Clark, he commented on this first reference in the Bible, and the way he puts it, I could not put it better. So I'm just going to give you, that's why I was looking at my bag earlier, because I printed out the quote, and I forgot it, as I often do things, I forget it, but I have it here with me, and I want to read it to you. What is this one law? He says, the word Torah comes from the root Yara, which signifies, this is what the word signifies, to aim at, to teach, to point out, to direct, to lead, to guide, to make straight or even. 
And from these significations of the word, and in all of these senses it is used in the Bible, we may see at once the nature, properties, and design of the law of God. It is a system of instruction in righteousness. It teaches the difference between moral good and evil. It ascertains what is right and fit to be done and what should be left undone because improper, uh, because improper to be performed. It continually aims at the glory of God and the happiness of His creatures. It teaches the true knowledge of the true God and the destructive nature of sin. It points out the absolute necessity of, the, of an atonement as the only means by which God can be reconciled to the transgressors. And in its very significant rites and ceremonies, it points out the Son of God, till He should come to put away iniquity by the sacrifice of Himself. It is a revelation of God's wisdom and goodness, wonderfully well calculated to direct the hearts of men into the truth, to guide their feet into the path of life, and to make straight, even, and plain that way which leads to God, and in which the soul must walk in order to arrive at eternal life. It is the fountain whence every correct notion relative to God, His perfection, His providence, His grace, His justice, His holiness, His omniscience, His omnipotence has been derived. And it has been the origin whence all the true principles of law and justice have been deduced. The pious study of it was the grand means of production, uh, of producing the greatest king, the most enlightened statesman, the most accomplished poet, and the most holy and useful men that ever adorned the world. It is, it is exceeded only by the gospel of Christ. It is at once the accomplishment of its rights and predictions the fulfillment of its grand plan and outline. As a system of teaching or instruction, it is the most sovereign and the most effectual. As by it, it is the knowledge of sin. It alone is the schoolmaster that leads men to Christ, that, may, uh, that, that they may be justified through faith. Who can absolutely ascertain the exact quantum of obliquity in a crooked line without the application of a straight one? And could sin, in all of its twistings, windings, and varied involutions, have ever been truly ascertained, had not God given to man this perfect rule to judge by? The nations who acknowledge this revelation of God have, as far as they attained to its dictates, the wisest, purest, most equal, and most beneficial laws. The nations that do not receive it have laws at once extravagantly severe and extravagantly indulgent. The proper distinctions between moral good and evil in such states are not known. Hence, the penal sanctions are not founded on the principles of justice, weighing the exact proportion of law, but on the most arbitrary caprices, which in many cases show the utmost indulgence to first-rate crimes. While they punish minor offenses with rigor and cruelty, what is the consequence? Just what might be reasonably expected. The will and the caprice of a man being put in the place of the wisdom of God. The government is oppressive and the people frequently goaded to distraction rise up in mass and overturn it. So that the monarch, however powerful for a time, seldom lives out half his days. 
This was the case in Greece, in Rome, in the major part of the Asiatic governments, and in the case in all nations of the world to the present day where the governor is despotic and the laws not formed according to the revelation of God. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But that's the law we're talking about. As we... Uh, mentioned just a moment earlier, Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. One law shall be to him that is a home-born and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Don't defile the Passover and bring things that will defile inside the house. Don't defile the lamb by taking the lamb outside the house. You can observe whether you are a child of Israel, homeborn, or whether you are a stranger. There is one law that applies to all men. And by the way, this is not just true of the New Testament. It is true of the entirety of the biblical revelation. I know what the Bible says. If you turn with me, let's look at two references in the New Testament. The first one will be Colossians chapter 2. Turn with me to New Testament, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, notice verse 11 and 12. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Now it's interesting, he's talking about the circumcision, which we're familiar with. But he's talking about, he attaches the circumcision here to what? The ordinance of baptism. As I mentioned, we observed the Lord's table not too long ago, and I said that baptism protects the church from outside influence. The Lord's Supper protects the church from inside influence, negative influence. You see, we've been circumcised by Christ and by this baptism through our redemption. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he says that at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, now therefore ye are no more strangers, but, uh, nor foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1, the Bible says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren, and Judah begat Perez and uh, of, Th of Zerah of Thamar, and Perez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rakab, which is who? 
Rahab. Now, let me ask you this. Was she homeborn in Israel? No, she was not homeborn. She was a stranger. She was a foreigner, and she could not participate in the Passover. But as a stranger, she came in by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says, by faith, she did what she did, and her faith was a token, and she was accepted into uh, the, uh, her, who, when she was, in a sense, an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, a stranger from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. She is no longer a foreigner and a stranger, but she is a fellow citizen of the saints and of the household of God, by faith. Boaz begat Obed of, what's the next word? Ruth. Was Ruth homeborn? No. She was a Moabite. She was a stranger. She was a foreigner. She was alien from the commonwealth of Israel, but she became a fellow citizen of the saints and of the household of God. Jesse begat David. The king and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begat uh, Rehoboam and Rehoboam begat... Uh, now he mentions here, um, notice uh, Jesse and uh, Solomon, David, King David. And notice here, it's interesting that the Bible does not mention in verse 6, uh, it says, Jesse begat David the king and David the king begat Solomon of her. Who's her? Bathsheba. Notice, it doesn't mention Bathsheba here. God doesn't mention Bathsheba. God says, of her that had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Was Uriah homeborn? No. He who was an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, who was a stranger and a foreigner, became a fellow citizen became a fellow citizen. There seems to be a pattern that has emerged here as we open the New Testament. As we open the New Testament, the idea that those who could come and uh, be joined to the commonwealth of Israel and to the promises and to the covenant and, and come under that banner is not something that is new to the New Testament. It's something that has always been true. But notice what it does not mean. It does not mean defilement with the world. Why? Because do you know the pattern of that example? It is always that those who are outside come inside. It is not those who are inside going outside without a change in their lives. And for every one of those who are mentioned in the genealogy of Christ, there is a point when faith was exercised and they became part and fellow citizens and came under the household of God, if you would, under the blood doorpost of the Lamb and that household, and now they can observe the Passover. So why would God give this instruction to the children of Israel, about the Passover. I, I think it's quite simple. If we go back, go back to Exodus chapter 12. Why, why do we need this additional instruction? Verse 50, 
Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. If you take from this, this point on, and what they're instructed to do, and you follow the history of the children of Israel, what do you find as a, a repeated pattern in their lives? Corruption with the world. Every single time. Corruption with the world. They begin to worship the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Hittites, the gods of the Jebusites, the gods of the Philistines. And they corrupted themselves at the altar of Moloch. They got to the place where uh, they even sacrificed their own children at the altar of a false god. And so how did they get there? And I think that because this is, think about it, this is at the beginning of the redemption of Israel. And he says, you're going to be delivered. Now, before you leave, as you're leaving, as you've been delivered, when you're going to observe the Passover, make sure that you have utmost reverence for this Passover. Make sure that you have utmost reverence for the Lamb and for the observation and for who can come in and participate in the Passover. And so that you not take out this Passover and give it to those four nations who have not submitted themselves to the covenants of God. And so you need to protect this covenant and protect what you have. And we live in a world today where churches, generally speaking, have corrupted themselves because they've gone out in the world and they had the idea they were just going to spread our wealth to the world and the world is not interested in spiritual things the world is not getting help for their sin uh, the world is not finding redemption in Christ why because the church has corrupted himself, itself and the believers have corrupted themselves what they think to themselves I don't have to have reverence towards God I can live as I please I can make my own way through life I, I'm not going to have anybody or God's word uh, 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 come under the submission of God's word I'm going to live as I please and you defile yourself, and the churches have defiled themselves, and then we wonder why we are in the state that we are in today. There is no longer any reverence for God. Those who are to be come under the household of God are not those who would seek to defile the household of God, but those who have been changed by God who come and submit themselves in reverence and submission to God and to what He's done. People say, well, why, why, do you, why do you do church the way you do? I had somebody come in, and this man was a, a pastor, and when we started the church, he says, well, you know, when we started off, there's not a whole lot of people, and he said, well, you know, if, if, you, want, if you want the church to grow, you, you know, you've got to attract the younger generations. You know, without saying that, it's a cute way to say, stop being so reverend. Stop being a stick in the mud. Stop trying to follow God's word so closely. So that you can bring in some younger generations and younger families. I wish I could invite him back and see him, show him what it looks like now. We are inundated with young people. And that's a wonderful thing. You see, I think there's an application for us today that uh, largely churches have corrupted themselves. Why? Because they brought the world in. They defied the church. They defiled the feast. 
you know, remember the church corner? I won't go there for sake of time. I'm, I'm done. I'm just rambling on now. The church at Corinth was a carnal church. Where did they go astray? The Lord's table. They had like a feast. They had a party. The rich people over here were eating with the rich people and the poor people were eating with the poor people. There was no self-examination. There was no repentance of sin. There was no preaching of sin anymore because after all, the sin was public in the church and nobody was proving the sin. The preacher, I don't know what he was doing, but evidently he was not preaching the word. He was not preaching against sin. He was not preaching about the people who needed to repent and live a pure life before God and the church had defiled itself. And Paul goes on and says, okay, you need to fix this and this and this. You've become so irreverent, so loose about the things of God that you don't care anymore. And you wonder why you are in the sinful state that you are. You know, we don't do what we do. Understand, we don't do what we do as a church because we think we're better than everybody else. We do what we do because we understand sin. And we understand where it leads if we just allow it to go. So, here is what I'm saying to you, is if I ever bring a rock band on this platform, you better fire me. You understand that? If I start dressing down and wear some blue jeans and holes in my jeans, you better fire me. If we stop praying and stop evangelizing, and stop preaching against sin. And bring in the world and loosen up a little bit. This church is over. And it's become what everything else is in the world. And we must not allow that to happen. Not in this household. Not in this household. And so, may the Lord help us to think about those sobering words. Because surely enough, we would see that Israel at some point... It's, in, it's interesting to me, I was trying to look through the Bible, how many times the children of Israel actually observed the Passover. It's seldom mentioned. Very seldom mentioned. The only time it is mentioned is when there's a time of revival. Isn't that interesting? When there's a time when the people come back to God. When they bring back the reverence towards God, then there seems to be a refreshing and a reviving when they observe the Passover as they ought to observe it.